As we come back together this morning, we, uh, we are on week two of a new study. Uh, we are uh, looking topically at the uh, reality of relationships. Uh, we started last week with uh, a unpacking of the very nature of God himself, presented to us as a Trinitarian God, one who exists in community. Uh, he exists in relationship with himself. Uh, this is not a God putting on one mask and then in some insane way talking to himself when he then quickly runs around and puts on another mask to be the sun. Uh, we don't understand exactly how it works. What we know is that there are three with one substance. There is a unity within the Trinity, and yet nonetheless, three distinct persons. And there is a way in which uh, we see the very reality of being created in the image of God as significantly being reflected in the fact that God creates us male and female. He creates a community of humanity to be in relationship with him. A new trinity is created, if you will, a trinity where two human beings interact then with the divine, another set of relationships and God delights to because he is, first and foremost, a God of love. And what I mean by that is that uh, as we understand a healthy notion of love, I know that most of the time when I only love myself and when I focus on that too much, it becomes rather perverse. It becomes rather self-absorbed. The, the stories I tell myself in my head of how I'm just not loved by others as much as I should be loved uh, and, and how if they really knew me, they would love me better, and how I must love myself uh, even better than that. It's not a, any suggestion that we should despise ourselves. Uh, it is in the world in which we live, however, uh, necessary to remind ourselves that self-love does not solve the problem. The tragedies uh, of both public figures and less public figures desperately trying to find the inner love within themselves that will somehow provide peace is tragic. There's nothing inside me in the end but condemnation, fear, and anger. And it manifests itself in different ways in different people, but I am such an unstable being. Happy to rip myself apart as much as I am others to make myself feel something, anything. But God, God describes himself really from the very beginning as a God in community who creates not out of a necessity, but out of a logical extension of his character. A loving God whose love is infinite and eternal creates a creation which exemplifies and becomes a recipient of that same love. Uh, the Father, by definition, uh, is a life-giving being. We know that fathers have children. He begets the Son. Complicated does not fit into my head. The Spirit uh, and the Son have always been co-eternal with the Father, and yet there is a way in which it is revealed to us in Scripture without explaining it that the Father begets the Son. That is a loving act of creation, not an act of need, but it creates an expectation for us in the way in which the Trinity interacts. The Father begets the Son. The Son, uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in perfect 
unity, and love. This is important because most of our loving relationships are structured more on uh, human notions of economics and contractual relationships. Uh, Love is really often defined from a human perspective based on how much uh, I'm getting out of the relationship and a feeling and emotion. I do math. And I will love you as long, we were talking this morning in Sunday school, about God's unconditional love. And Steve mentioned the fact that, that there just isn't a, a way in which God sets up a legal structure uh, where he will stop loving us. We sin, we reject, we run, his love pursues. That we have a God whose love does not have arbitrary lines. It's not contractual The math on God creating us ended up uh, being a deficit a long time ago. And yet he pursues. His love is driven not by the economics, but by out of a transcendent love that is bigger. And so when we uh, come to a text like this, we have to wrestle with the fact that we regularly reinterpret our relationship with God through our contractual lenses, that God must be getting something out of this that is economically or spiritually or necessary for him in his being. That God needs something from his creation. And therefore, our interaction is some sort of quid pro quo. It perverts everything that we read in Scripture when we imagine that God must be as the serpent placed in Adam and Eve's head, holding something back, something that is needful, something that if he would be more generous, we would all be happier. Let's look at how generous our God is. This morning we are going to read from Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 27 and go through 2-3. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and, say, uh, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And the Lord saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful in the preaching of your word, that you might use it, your word, unpacked, Lord, to strengthen and encourage us about the joy and the glory of what it means to be your image bearers and in relationship with you, unique to other aspects of creation. Lord, may we delight in our unique relationship with you. May we understand it in ever greater degrees as a blessing. And Lord, may we, through the preaching of your word, be encouraged and built up in its truth, transformed and renewed into what it means to be those who put on the newness of Christ. We pray all of this in great hope and expectation. We also pray, Lord, that if anything is said this morning that is not true, that is not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as we come to this uh, passage, I think it's, it's useful uh, to ask the question, why create? Philosophers uh, have asked the question on more than one occasion. Theologians have asked the question, and perhaps uh, consciously or unconsciously, I would suggest that most of us at one point or another have asked, why is all of this stuff here? Why did God do this? Why is it here? And if there isn't a God, why is it here? Or maybe I should stop asking the question and just enjoy the fact that it is here. But now what do I do with it? Without any original creator, what I do with creation becomes a whole nother can of worms because i got no place to start. But God created. We believe that to be uh, true as Christians. Why? Was there a need? Was there a need in God? Now, as humans... It's not uncommon for us to imagine the divine, right? Uh, Sartre was right. We're in the project of becoming a god. We usually make other gods to aspire to. Uh, and most human-created gods tend to have most of our characteristics, right? Our fallen characteristics, which is really why it's easy to tell we made them up. So you take the Babylonian god, uh, Marduk, uh, one of the earliest uh, creation stories that we found written down. And he and the gods were really tired of doing their own work. It was like Downton Abbey, and they needed somebody. Uh, we just watched the movie. It was wonderful. Um, we needed servants, right? Uh, and so Marduk says, look, let's create humans to be our slaves because the gods are tired and tuckered out from having to do all their own work. And so the divine needs something. It needs to be praised. It needs to be honored. It needs to be served. And so Marduk creates humans to make the gods feel like they're a little bit better and taken care of. I can get my mind around that God. I may not like that God. I may want to be that God. I'd rather be on top than on bottom, but I get my mind around it. A very human notion of the divine. Therefore, God creates because God needs to be taken care of and needs to feel self-important. Marduk wasn't the only one. That's just one of the most explicit. All kinds of other uh, notions of a divine being have gone along those lines. Subtly, perhaps, or more overtly. Aristotle was a little more subtle. Aristotle had the notion that because God is love, that God is a being that is creative in and of himself, that, that there was a need 
to create something. To define himself as a creator God, he needed an outlet for his creative ability and for his love. Whatever God Aristotle was wrestling with, the notion of the divine and what the divine would do, the first cause, as Aristotle talked about it, because it is a first cause, by necessity has to cause something else. Therefore, the divine doesn't have any control over the creative act. It is actually compelled to create and to build. Again, the challenge there is that's, that's a God who is not fully God. A God who can sovereignly choose to do whatever it wills to do. To suggest even in its best ways that there is something that compels uh, because of a need God to create, either a need to express his love or a need to express his creativity, that if there's anything inherently lacking in God that creation fulfills, we have an incomplete divinity. But one, as humans, we can all get our minds around. That's not the God of the Bible. The God we interact with, the God who delights to call us his children, the God who created us and tells us that we were created in his image has no need for us. That within the Trinity there was perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect relationship. It was complete, fully enclosed, and absolutely without any additional need. But it is a life-giving God. A God who is described as Father. It is logical. It is in line with His nature and His character that He creates. What we see in the Genesis account is the logical, not necessary, outworking of a life-giving God. He delights to do it. He chooses to do it. It makes perfect sense that God would do it. But he is not compelled to do so. He chooses and delights in line with his character and his nature to spread and to create life. A life-giving God who describes himself as father and son. Could we ever doubt that it would be in line with his character to create life, to build a creation? Why am I hammering that point? Well, because it's biblical. <laughs> because unless we understand the true nature of who God is, we will underestimate how powerful his love is for us. We will also reduce God from the fierce, untamable, uncontrollable, unbox-fitting divinity that he truly is. Every time I reduce down to God to emotions or rationale or thought projects that I can fully understand, I have denied God his full power in my life. I've denied God the full aspect of what it means to come in relationship with an other, an other far more marvelous than I can possibly imagine. Then my greatest conceptions of what I think the divinity could be will fall far short of the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a natural 
outworking in the best sense of that word, a natural outworking of a life-giving God as he creates a creation that itself in this text speaks so eloquently of life-giving. The beauty of all of the animals apparently being vegetarian is a conversation whether or not the text necessitates that that was completely true. What it does do is reflect and build on what Isaiah and other prophets will talk about later, which is that peaceable kingdom where the lion lays down with the lamb. This notion that what we understand as the violence ret in tooth and claw is not the nature of the creation, a life-giving creation, not a life-taking creation. An abundance for all that God created, that they might have all that they needed, every seed-bearing plant, that they might have their nourishment and delight and be full. The love of God not only creates us in His image, but provides for us the entire creation that He created. He provides everything he gave, I mean, see, everything he made as a gift to us. So I want us to unpack briefly. Why do pastors say that? It's always a lie. I confess my sin of being not brief. I want to unpack love in this text. How do we see the love of God? in its, some of its richness and fullness. I certainly cannot express all of it. First of all, image. Us and them, uh, small creators, uh, to subdue and have dominion, the text tells us. This, uh, again, perverted by sin and brokenness, uh, but to be sure, what the Hebrew here indicates is that we are to engage it and shape it, not to be passively simply recipients of creation, but to administer it. Uh, this is, doesn't mean, again, this is before the fall. This does not mean that this is going to be a, a war between us and creation or that we somehow have to go conquer the savageness out and around us. It is, here is, so much of creation that I have not planted a garden in yet. Take what you learned from the way I built the garden and go extend it. Shape and take the things of creation. Use who and what you are to extend my glory throughout creation. I could do it without you. I delight to do it with you. Don't read dominion and subdue this side of the fall. Remember where we are. There is no sin here. Now, has sin polluted our understanding of subdue and rule over and dominion? Yes, horribly. We often bear the consequences of it. Intimacy. 2.7 and 2.22. I didn't have these in the text, but it starts, of course, with what we read, let us make them in our own image. But we get to understand how intimate that really is. Not only is there image, but there's intimacy. The intimacy is that the only creation that God slows down and forms by, being, by it being described as forming with his hands and breathing the Spirit into it. And Eve 
is a personal act of God, putting Adam to sleep, pulling out the rib, and forming Eve from Adam's rib. Both Adam and Eve are created by uniquely personal creative acts. God slows down, not just by the power of his word, which is marvelous and miraculous and would have been fine. I'm not really going to complain, but he slows down and he says, I put you together. And then imagine how that gets just used and glorified in Jeremiah. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know your frailties and your weakness. I made you. He didn't stop building humans when he built Adam and Eve. According to Jeremiah, according to God's revelation to Jeremiah, he's never stopped putting us together with his own hands. That's how much it means to him to love you and to know you and to see you created in his image as individuals, even as we talk much about the way we collectively as the body of Christ reflect his image, can't get away from, never would want to get away from the individual creative act of a God who knits us together in his womb. Generosity. So we have image, we have intimacy, we have generosity. God gives everything to Adam and Eve. He doesn't hold anything back. And you go, oh, what about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The fact that there is a reality that God gives us choice and gives us opportunity to choose him and to trust him rather than ourselves or the tempter, is a process of what it means to be fully human and created in God's image and to have free will. As nervous as that makes reformed people, apparently free will somehow does function and we still have a sovereign God. And if we try and reduce one of those, uh, we end up with some other weird perversion. Free will is absolutely true and so is God's sovereignty. And in the sovereignty of God, he gives us free will and he wants Adam and Eve to have a legitimate opportunity he is so generous that he gives us the opportunity to choose, to engage with human choice, to desire that our will would be in line with his to be sure, because it's the only will and only plan that gives life and life eternal. Everything else is rather self-destructive and horrible at some point very quickly, as Genesis tells us. So to have everything and then, of course, to abuse it, the text very quickly tells us that, that there is grace. There is grace in Genesis chapter 3. There is the promise of redemption. The fact that God still shows up in the cool of the day and goes through the process of helping Adam and Eve understand what it means to have severed relationship, God initiates again. Not only did he initiate in the relationship when he created us, but he initiates the relationship in our sin and brokenness when he comes to them in the cool of the day knowing exactly what they had already done. And as a good father walks them through the process of coming to repentance by exposing through questions and firmness the reality of their sin. But that is grace. My response would have been to go ahead and close that creation up and start again. I've done it many times with Plato worlds that I've built and Lego worlds. 
And when I don't like them, I just take the Lego apart and start all over. God renews. He's a much better God. Anger. You know, oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. This is good, right? Anger is good. Not uncontrolled. But God gets angry because he loves us. How does he reveal himself to Moses? A God slow to anger and abounding in love. If you don't get angry when your children or your dear friends are harmed by anything in this world, even if it's their own foolishness, let alone something as, as, as tragic as an illness that seems completely out of left field. If we're not angry at the broken world that causes cancer and what that does to a human life, if we're not angry with the addictions that rob our, our friends of any sense of humanity and a sense of free will, if you're not angry with that, you don't love. Do my loves uh, of self usually pervert my anger? To be sure. It's why God talks a lot about having my anger redirected and understood through the lens of who he is. Unrighteous anger is a horrible thing. It destroys those around them. But we know God loves us because he loves us enough to get angry at the things that are killing us. He is not impassionate. He is not unfeeling. He will do business with evil and death, and it's not because he is somewhat ambivalent about them. He's angry. Angry at what it's doing, angry at what it has done, and he throws himself into that anger in love. And it is amazing to see that the anger of God born out in the end is born by himself. That the love of Christ offering himself on our behalf so that the anger of God at sin and death could be directed at the only thing that could sustain it, that could handle it, that could bear itself under the weight of the righteous anger. Creation could not have handled the weight of its justice. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Self-sacrificial, I've already kind of hinted at that, right? And I hinted I was explicit. Love, the love of God towards humanity, is not only the fact that he gives us his image, not only the fact that he is intimate with us, not just that he has been generous with us, not just that his grace pours out, not just that he gets angry at the things that take us away from him and away from who we are in him, but he then gives himself for us. And the love that we should understand in God is, of course, a love that is one so wonderfully summarized in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's hard for me to imagine that kind of self-sacrificial love. Love, again, for me, regularly polluted by sin, is somewhat self-oriented. What will people Give of themselves for me that I might feel loved. But my stars, to, to know real love is to give of myself to you. Forgiving. 
we see the love of God and his ability to forgive. And remember, the definition of forgiveness is not just that you forget it, but because a real debt is incurred, somebody has to pay the debt. So God takes the debt, whether it's emotional, financial, right? There is a debt. And the one forgiving is being willing to pay the debt that was incurred by the one who sinned. I will not hold you to paying me back. That's not forgiveness. That's banking. But forgiving. Forgiving says, I will pay the debt on your part. That is the cross. Empowering. Matthew 28. Everything I have, I now have all authority. Now go make disciples. I want you to be my hands and feet again. I have given you that ability by the Holy Spirit. It's going to come out in a few days. You're going to be filled. The promises are going to be renewed and even greater than you ever expanded, expected. God's relationship with humanity is a God who gives everything he has yet again, all power and authority to do the work of the kingdom. That's the love of God. That is what it means for God to be in relationship with humanity. It is how he models relationship for humanity. Sharing of image. Sharing of intimacy. Generosity. Grace. Righteous anger in a fallen world. Self-sacrifice. Forgiveness. And then that empowering. Making us again co-heirs with Christ. That is God's relationship to humanity. That's why it's a relationship, not a religion. And what I mean by that is going back to those other gods, there was a way to get those gods, since they have needs, to give us what we want. And so my faith becomes a manipulation of the divine. If it's Marduk, how do I get to be the chief of slaves, right? That's the whole goal of being a prince in Babylon. Why? Because you're Marduk's chief slave, and then everybody else is a slave under you. How do I negotiate to get a better job in a condition of slavery? Or if God is somewhat unfeeling and absent, and therefore, uh, but, but nonetheless needs love, needs appreciation, needed to create creation, there's a way to interact with that God that's different, to get the quid pro quo. Aristotle didn't escape that in his amazing construction, and it was amazing and intelligent. But now we're in a relationship, a relationship with a God who is in relationship with himself. So how do we proceed? My encouragement is to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, John chapter 1, with an understanding this week of a God who is in relationship with his people, who wants to take the first step, does take the first step, communicate who he is, and engage with us. What if this isn't uh, Genesis 1 and 2, a fun text for us to fight about whether or not evolution is true, or whether the earth is 8,000 years old? What if 
the promise of this text and this amazing poetry is to describe the character and nature of God and how he interacts with humanity. Not that we can't have the scientific conversation another day. It is fun. But for this week, read it as a relationship poem of a God who chose to create you in line with his character and his nature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. Again, Lord, we do desire to be in relationship with you, not not a contractual relationship, not a religious relationship, but Lord, one that is glorious, that takes into account that you are our king, our creator, our father, our brother and our friend. Lord, only you could be all of those things. Only you could communicate to us the breadth and the hope of what it means to have a living God. We ask that we would live in your presence this week. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would come forward at this time. We'll take up a tithe.